verses 19 through 25 will be our text, and we'll remain standing for prayer. Verse 19, But I said, How shall I put thee among the children, and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations? And I said, Thou shalt call me my father, and shalt not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departeth from her husband, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. Our God, we come before you, and I lift up Joanne Tomkowitz and pray that you would encourage her and, and touch her body, strengthen her, uh, rejuvenate her, uh, relieve her of the pain she's been experiencing, and pray for Ed that you just sustain him and lift him up that they would sense not only the prayers of God's people, but they would sense the everlasting arms undergirding them, that you'd lift them up, and, and through this valley, Father, through this time of challenge, that they would have your peace, that they would have your strength and sense your grace and also your comfort. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. I pray for Charlie. I lift him up, and thank you for him, Father. Thank you for him. Uh, enduring uh, this morning and 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 w- working through the pain, as it were, so he could teach First Corinthians. And uh, Lord, thank you for uh, the task that he has undertaken and the good job he's been doing with such really some difficult texts in your Word and being true to your Word. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for his study. Thank you for his wife. Thank you for his ministry and teaching the young people and Lynn as well and all the other helpers that we have in the back that we are so thankful for. Uh, Lord, I pray for your healing upon Charlie's body. I pray that he would not, that he did not set himself back today, that you would minister and heal his body so that in the next few days he would be recovered from his procedure and, and be able to go back to his, his regular schedule. And we thank you for him. We do pray for Josh, Father, that you'd bless Josh as you already have. Just continue to use him. Thank you, Lord, for how you are using him. Uh, Lord, it's so exciting. Thank you for the opportunity you've given him, and we just lift him up to you and pray for your great blessing and pray that lives would be impact because he uh, surrendered to you uh, for this trip that he's on. And we just ask your blessing on Josh's life. And uh, Lord, thank you again for your word. Bless us as we go through the scriptures. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. In our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3. And again, I'm so grateful for you being here tonight. 
Uh, we took our normal route and had to be rerouted because of some of the flooding. And I told my wife on the way, it's probably just going to be you and me tonight. So it's not just Mary and, her, and I. And I am very grateful for you folks. Anybody drown on the way here? No. All right, Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, we are going through this passage uh, verses by verses. And tonight we come to a chunk, verses 19 through 25. The theme is the same. We noted there's some key words that Jeremiah uses throughout this book in his ministry to Judah, remember? He was one of the later prophets. He's known as a major prophet, along with Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, simply because their, their writings are more voluminous than the minor prophets. There's nothing uh, less significant about the minor prophets. Uh, you know, it's not that uh, Jeremiah and them were more important it's just, that's why we call them major prophets. They were all God's prophets. They were all obedient to the Lord, and God used them in a mighty way. Um, but now, one of the themes that we find throughout the book, especially in the Hebrew, is a, a play on words and uh, certain words. One of the words that we see predominantly used is the word for, for turn or return. And it's used in various contexts. Later on in the book, it'll be used to talk about their return to the land of Israel. But it is used uh, to talk about their need to return to the Lord, to turn from their sinful ways. And we see that throughout our text here tonight in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. We see that God uh, is continuing, Jeremiah is continuing the theme uh, that we looked at two weeks ago uh, from verse 13. Listen to Jeremiah 3.13 because it it's what we're talking about tonight. He said, Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. That's a, a reference to their pagan idolatry that they embraced from the Canaanites. And have you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. So we see, we see still God is challenging the people of Judah to repent, the Israelites to repent, to return. Let me give you the outline here of the next uh, these these verses, and we're just going to jump jump right in. The title of tonight's message is "Sincere and Heartbroken," because that's what God wanted. He he wanted these people to recognize the seriousness of their sin, to stop playing games, and and worshiping Him, you know, externally going through the motions which they were doing and. Kind of, uh, you know, they were still just, they were halting between two opinions. They were limping back and forth between two opinions. You remember another great prophet of old challenged Israel, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Uh, and the answer was, was, was the same as going on with Jeremiah. The people answered him not a word. And Jeremiah's kind of getting that. He's, although he, Jeremiah is getting a little more lip service. Um, so first we have verses 19 through 21, God's refusal to take back an unrepentant people. Now he's, he's presenting the idea. And by the way, that's God's heart. God wants them to repent. God wants them to sincerely, genuinely recognize how their sin has affected them and come back to him. And he is more than willing to take them back. But he will not um, Take back an unrepentant people. And then verse 22, the first part, he again calls them to repentance. 
And then beginning in verse 22, part B, all the way to verse 25, he does one of two things, and commentators are, the way, you know, sometimes in language, written language, it can be hard to convey certain things. In other words, there's certain sentences in any language that depending on the emotion that's read, depending on what words are emphasized, uh, you can you can lose stuff in the in the you know the writing of it. When you and I have personal conversations, we are able to communicate so much more than just the words that we throw out. We're able to emphasize some words. We're able to you know express facial expression and 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 so there's so much more. You know, we'd have five people read the same sentence exactly the same exact sentence. And based on how they read it, it, you could really interpret it differently. And so there's there's some question here from verses 22b. If you look at verse 22, the middle of the verse, Behold, we come unto thee. And by the way, by the way this is written, Jeremiah, some is just prose, just writing. Some is po- some are poems, and uh, we don't see that. You know, the King James version is just kind of laid out verse by verse, but you can tell by when it switches from prose to poetry that we're starting a new thought here. And in verse 22, part B, it's it's connected. So the second part of verse 22, all the way to verse 25, is all together. We know that. And it is words of repentance. Jeremiah, or God, is articulating. Some people think it's Jeremiah prophesying what will someday be the the repentant prayers of God's people. Other people believe that Jeremiah is actually giving them um, the words to say, you know, like an example prayer, much like the Lord did with the disciples, you know, teaching them how to pray. He was not giving them words to repeat, you know, just, okay, repeat these words. These are magical words. Just repeat them several times a day. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He said, when you pray, use not vain repetition. Prayers were never meant. And the Lord's Prayer was simply meant as an example. So some people think that the verse 22b to verse 25 is actually Jeremiah saying, you know, you want to get right with God? This is what God is looking for. And then he articulates. So either way, this, this text is a prayer of repentance. And we are going to look at it because... It's what God is looking for. Now, by the way, next week or whenever we get to the, this series again, um, chapter 4 and the first few, few verses ends the thought of what is here. And it's very clear that the Lord is basically saying, I'm willing to take you back, but I, I, really, I really doubt your sincerity. You know, I really doubt that you're that broken up about it. And that's... The weeping prophet Jeremiah was trying to get that. So let's jump in. And uh, in fact, I remember I, I was thinking as I was studying this text, there's, a, there's an evangelist, and uh, I remember him preaching one time, and he was, he was communicating. I think the Lord was showing him at this time that he had uh, he'd led a lot of people to, the, to Christ, that um, it was more just a matter of, hey, pray this prayer. And as God was beginning to deal with him about the idea of, you know, you, you, need, you need to... You need to look for people that are repentant and truly sorry for their sin. And, and he was relating. I still picture him. He was relating that 
how how he used to lead people to the Lord and the response that, you know, as he would be leading someone, he'd be like real passionate, like, do you want to get saved? And the other guy's like, yeah, sure. You know, he's chewing gum. And I, I just remember him doing the chewing gum thing. And he's like, all right, are you really sorry for your sin? You really got to be sorry for your sin? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, and he goes through that all. And I have this in my mind. If some guy chewing gum, hearing the gospel, and you know, he's not he's not rejecting it. But, you know, there's this nonchalant, the idea of the chewing the gum. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that he's not really serious about it. And I, I've been thinking of this through this whole text. And I'm, I'm imagining Jeremiah, like this evangelist, saying, you know, are you sincere? You know, there needs to be this sincerity. And, you know, when you witness to people, we don't know what's going on in people's hearts. And, you know, and, and it is a challenge. There's no doubt in my mind that I have quote-unquote led people to Christ where nothing happened in their heart. I suspect that because they never never showed any fruit. There never seemed to be a grasp that they were real sinners. And, and so like that evangelist, I too have worked on, you know, kind of stepping back and realizing that, I, you know, I need, to see, I need to see God work. When somebody prays a prayer, but here's the thing then. On the other hand, salvation is so simple that even a little child can come to the Lord. You know, you, you, and it is just a matter of faith. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come. It's, it's simple. Believing. So there's like, it, it, I, I totally get this challenge. And I think Jeremiah had this challenge big time. He's preaching to people that needed to be, to repent, to be serious about their sin. And by, by Jeremiah's, first of all, extended message, I mean, it's not like he just said, okay, preach or, or repent, get right. Good, you did it. All right, let's move on. He dragged, it seemed like he dragged this out for a long time. But remember, he was preaching God's message. So God dragged it out for a long time, and God doesn't drag anything out. He was giving them space to repent. And so he took as much time as it took, and he kept sending Jeremiah back for years to preach repentance. So, sincere and heartbroken. That's what God is looking for. David said in Psalm 51, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. In fact, not only will he not despise it, it's what he's looking for. So look at verse 19. God's refusal to take back an unrepentant people. But I said, how shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land? In other words, he's... And, and, and the idea of the way this is written is he's... He's thinking about, in fact, look at it, a, a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of the nations. This is apparently what God wanted. He wanted the people to return. Of course, talking about Israel and pretty soon talking about Judah. They were in captivity or they were going to be in captivity. His heart was to let them enjoy the blessings of the promised land. It was theirs. It was his heritage. But they were in the middle of chastisement and getting ready to be chastised. And now Jeremiah is coming, and, and God is saying, now how can, I, how can I return you to the land, this pleasant and goodly land, if, if you're not right with me? In fact, the way it's, it's worded in, um, in this text, uh, and then, in fact, look what he says, Thou shalt call me my father, 
and shall not turn away from me. Um, so the idea is, in fact, in, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 4, they were calling him my father. But according to verse 5 of chapter 3 here, this text, uh, they were not acting according to their cry. And so now in verse 19, when it says, but I said, it's kind of going back to those statements. Again, in verse, verse 4 and verse 5, so he's saying, you, 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 like you're calling me father, but you're really not acting like I'm your father. But for my part, that's kind of the idea of what he's saying in verse 19 when it says, but I said. So he's saying, now, here's my perspective. How, shall I, how can I put thee back among the children and give thee a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the hosts of the nations? And I said, thou shalt call me my father. He's already mentioned that, and they were already calling him that. So what's he mean, you will call me my father? He is saying, this is what I'm looking for. You'll call me my father, and you will not turn away from me. So they were, they were calling him my father while they were turning away from him. Remember what Jesus said? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And so that's the idea. Verse 21. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping in supplications of the children of Israel. Now, this, is, is, this can be complicated if you understand. A voice was heard upon the high places. Remember what that's a reference to? The high places were the places where they, they practiced their Baal worship, uh, the, the, the false idolatry of the Canaanites was in the high places. That's where they had their altars and that forth. So he says, a voice was heard upon the high places, weeping in supplications of the children of Israel. So you got God's people in the wrong place doing the right thing. Again, a voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel. It's, it's like a contradiction. Because then he goes, for they have perverted their way and they've forgotten the Lord thy God, their God. So you got this mumbo jumbo here. Again, you've got God's people in the wrong place, the high places. They're, and they're praying, which all the people in the high places, the, the, what you do in the high places is you pray to Baal. You pray to, you pray to Ashtoreth. You pray to Moloch. You don't play, pray to Jehovah God. The, the place ordained it. And so there's this contradiction here. They're crying unto Jehovah God, Yahweh, and yet they were doing it from the wrong place. They had perverted their way, and they had forgotten the Lord, their God. By the way, some believe, in, and you may remember we've talked about the reforms of, of Josiah, that uh, it was, it's possible that by this time, because this is not chronological, it is possible that Jer Josiah had already issued his reforms and he like totally devastated and took down all the four, the the idols, all the altars. He broke them down. In fact, there's a reference in a few sometime in this text tonight where it talks about the bare the bare hills or the bare high places. So that may have been that he's talking about, you know, that that perhaps Israel got into this habit of being so involved in the pagan Canaanite religions that they would go up and worship at the high altars. And then when Josiah had his reform. They were in the habit of going to those places, so they still went to them to pray to Jehovah, to pray to Yahweh. And um, it, it was a total contradiction.
And the Lord, the Lord's being skeptical here. Because the Lord, unlike us, he sees the heart, doesn't he? Remember 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9? It's a very important verse, and it was given to God's people. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And apparently that's still going on. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth. God is looking for people whose heart is tender. Heart is perfect, tender toward him. So that he might show himself strong. And that's what God wants to do. And so you say, okay, Israel could say, so you see us then. We're here on the high places. We're calling to you, Yahweh. We're calling to you. And he's saying, wait a minute, there's something wrong here because you've perverted your ways. There's a kind of a skepticism. God is not a gullible God because he sees the hearts. Have you ever heard a statement or a saying, I've said this often, had no idea where it originated, but apparently it was going to going. If um, in certain contexts, if somebody's trying to pull one over on you or sell you something, and uh, have you ever heard this? Yeah, and I've got a bridge I could sell you. You ever hear that? How many of you heard that? Okay, you have heard of it. At least my wife has. <laughs> okay, a couple of others have. Well, I have I've learned, you know, what does what do you mean I got a bridge I can sell you? There's a guy, listen to this, you, you maybe have, I've never heard of him. George C. Parker is a name to remember because he holds a special place of dishonor in America. He is remembered as one of the most successful and daring swindlers in American history. So here's a guy who set up an office in New York City and he sold some of the city's most famous attractions to tourists. So he would literally set up shop and he would get naive tourists who came by and he would say, hey, I got a bridge to sell you. I'm the owner of the Brooklyn Bridge. That was his favorite. His favorite was the Brooklyn Bridge. And so that's where that saying came from. Hey, I got a bridge I can sell you. He said that to people. And he, you know, he pretended to be the owner of the Brooklyn Bridge. He also sold the Statue of Liberty, Madison Square Garden, and Grant's Tomb. I mean, he was an effective salesman. Uh, he produced elaborately forged documents and deeds to convince his targets that he was the rightful owner of the landmark that he was selling. He was so persuasive that on more than one occasion, the police had to come and explain to the new owners of the Brooklyn Bridge why they couldn't put up toll booths and collect, collect money for themselves. I mean, this guy was a swindler of swindlers. And so now that puts on new meanings when someone says, yeah, and I got a, I got a bridge I can sell you. you know, that's a way of saying that the whole thing is a sham. But uh, he was convicted uh, three different times. He was convicted, and he was eventually sent to prison in Sing Sing, uh, where he spent the last eight years of his life. But uh, his dishonesty and his fortune was um, preying on people who foolishly believed in empty words. He wasn't just an expert salesman, but he realized that many people were gullible, and he could use that to his advantage. And in many ways, folks, people today can still be very gullible. Uh, and there are some really great deceivers out there 
that could talk your socks off or could sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, but God, he knows our heart. In fact, remember the verse I quoted this morning. Judge nothing before the time. I love this verse in Corinthians. Until the Lord comes. And it's not saying don't. You know, people love Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And that verse in Corinthians that I'm quoting could also be used. Oh, judge nothing before the time. Don't say anything. Don't condemn anything. Don't say anything's wrong. That's not what he's saying. He is saying we still have to judge righteous judgment. By the way, that's a command in the Bible. But, but by judge, when he says judge nothing before the time, he's saying hold off your final opinion of something until you get all the facts, is the idea. Until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, that's the motives, then shall everyone have praise of God. So, so here's Israel coming along saying, Father, Father, forgive us oh we want your blessings we want your blessings and god is saying I, I i don't buy it i know your heart you're not right with me you're not broken you're not contrite and he's the same god today now sometimes people can be sorry for the consequences of their actions and they're they're very sad not because they're sad about their sin but they're sad because they're Sin has created some problems for them. And, and you and I, tears are tears to us. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I tend to be very gullible. I have believed people in the past that I should not have believed. You know, And so we need a, what well, we need, God doesn't need because he sees it. And so God, looking down at Israel, yeah, he's hearing these more, oh, these wonderful cries of sorrow tears oh oh you're so sorry you're so weeping and, and the terms in the hebrew here are very strong the weeping from the high places they're calling out to god they want god to work because they're in a fix and things aren't going well but he's not buying it they're sorry simply because things are they're struggling not because they're sorry for their sins so look at verse 22 Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. And again, in the Hebrew, there's a play on, um, on words. Return, ye backsliding children. Uh, in other words, he's saying, turn, ye children that have turned. This Hebrew word for turn. Dominant here, especially in this first part. Turn, ye children that have turned, and I will heal your, your turnings. Now, this is still a legitimate offer. Remember, he's talking to a people that he wasn't convinced had repented. That's why he's still telling them, you got to turn. You have to repent. I love what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon made this observation about this, this phrase here that I just read in verse 22. He says, return ye backsliding children. I notice that he does not say, return ye penitent children. He pictures you in your worst colors, yet he says, return ye backsliding children. I notice also that he does not say, heal your wounds first and then come back to me. But he says, return ye backsliding children and all, with all your backslidings unhealed, and I will heal your backslidings. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That observation. So it's true. You know, we sing a song, Just As I Am Without One Plea. So we, we tell people, come to God just as you are, 
And I've heard so many people that don't understand that hymn and that invitation. And they're thinking, God accepts me just as I am. No, when God says, come to me just as you are, and I will hear you, heal you. Remember, what's the, the, the challenge to, to Israel? Turn, repent. He's not saying, hey, you know what? I accept you as you are. You know, you can just continue to rebel. You can continue to worship Baal. You can continue to worship Ashtaroth. You can continue to worship Moloch, whatever you want. And I just, just come to me and I accept you as you are. No, the idea of just as I am means you and I are broken because of our sin. And God, that's when we come to the Lord. Again, as Spurgeon said, he's not saying, all right, you heal you clean up and then come to me. He's saying, you come to me in genuine remorse and repentance and I'll heal your backslidings. That's a, it's a great God that we have. There's an interesting story uh, out of the 19th century, 1818. Uh, I'd never heard of this guy, a guy by the name of Ignaz Philip Semmelweis. Uh, one article I read, he said this, Ignaz Philip Zemmelweis was born into a world of dying women. The finest hospitals lost one out of six mothers to the scourge of what was called childbed fever. So back in the 18, early 1800s, uh, there was, in, in the medical community, there was this a high rate of, of mortality in childbirth of moms that would die. And... Um, the finest hospitals lost one out of every six mothers. One out of every six mothers. And doctors daily, uh, so here's what a common doctor would do back then. A doctor's daily routine began in the dissecting room where he performed autopsies. From there, he made his way to the hospital to examine expectant mothers without ever pausing to wash his hands. And Dr. Zemmelweis was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the resultant infection of death. By the way, you think about that. Uh, in fact, uh, at 11 years, after 11 years of delivery, he delivered, doc, this doctor delivered 8,537 babies, and he only lost 184 mothers because of what he had learned. That's still, to us, that's, that's amazing. Uh, you know, our, our current statistics, last ones, uh, that were available were 2021, where there were 20.4 deaths, mother's deaths, per 100,000 live births. I mean, that's, that's just amazing. Uh, that, or that, by the way, that's for women under 25. The 31.3% for the mothers from age from 25 to 39, and 1385 for those moms over the age of 40, which is nothing, because that's out of 100,000. And yet, Dr. Semmelweis, Semmelweis, he lost 184 mothers out of 8,537, and that was really low at the time. Again, uh, one out of every six mothers died. And here's what he said, and I quote, he said, pure Purell, which is pertaining to childbirth, pure Purell fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a womb. I have shown how it can be prevented I have proved all that I've said, but while we talk, 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 gentlemen, he's talking to other doctors, women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash, wash your hands. And he was laughed at. He was mocked. In fact, he, he, uh, he was so mocked, 
that that he was considered a a, a laughing stock in the medical community and um, just kind of had a sad end to his life. But it ended up that he was right. That you know something as simple as washing your hands. That you know you've just been dealing with death and infection, and all they had to do was wash their hands. And of course, that's now today's proper procedure. But I want you to think about that idea of washing. Jesus used that. Do you remember a time when Jesus was ministering? In fact, he had just finished the Passover meal, and Judas Iscariot, Satan had already put into Judas's mind to betray Jesus. And that's when Jesus went around and washed the disciples' feet. Remember that? He washed the disciples' feet. And then he came to Peter. And Peter, God bless Peter, with holy zeal, with an understanding of who Jesus was, he said, you are not going to wash my feet. I should wash your feet. This is my paraphrase. And, of course, what did Jesus say? If I don't wash your feet, you have, I have, you have nothing to do with me. And then, and then of course, Peter... He then changed. He said, okay, don't just wash my hands or my feet, but wash my hands and my head also. You know, he was a little impetuous. And I say, God bless him. He had that, he had that zeal. He loved Jesus. And he, he understood that Jesus is the master. He knew who Jesus was. And the fact that Jesus would take on the lowest of low and wash his feet was um, unheard of. So he couldn't even bring himself. I can't have you wash my feet. And Jesus said, okay, then you're not, you can't have anything to do with me. Okay, then wash me all. And then you know, that, that little scenario, that cute scenario, that touching scenario, created an amazing opportunity for Jesus to make this statement. And it's an amazing statement. Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, he's pointing to his disciples, but not all. Of course, he was talking about Judas. But again, listen to what he said. This is amazing. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. He's talking to believers that have been, that were washed, would eventually be washed in the blood which he would shed. But in other words, these people were, by believing in Jesus, they were cleansed. Well, not all. Judas... But those that are cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ don't need to be cleansed again. Sadly, uh, I was at a church service recently where every Sunday, every service and this service, they go through the communion service and they offer up and part of their saying is, Lord, receive this sacrifice that we give you. And then they ask, you know, Lord, we're not worthy to receive you. Only say the word and we shall be healed. And it's sad because this simple truth is, he's already said the word. Believe. Believe on me and you'll be saved. And when you believe on the Lord, you don't need to pray. You don't need to believe on him every week. You know, that. I mean, that's you think about it, that's a good prayer. Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you. Say the word and I shall be healed. And he said the word, come unto me. Come unto me so we come. And we're healed. And so you don't need to come to the Lord again and say, hey, Lord, heal me again. No. And that's the point here. They that are washed need not to be washed again. Save their feet. And, and this goes back to the practice of the day in Palestine where they'd all wear sandals or bare feet. 
And so you didn't go into a place until you washed your feet. It wasn't like us with our shoes. You washed your feet. And that's it's a beautiful picture of you and I living the Christian life. You know, when we're cleansed, we're cleansed, folks. We don't need to be washed again, but our feet. In other words, we don't need a complete cleansing because Jesus has done that. But we do need to wash our feet. Sin, sin does get our feet dirty. You know, it doesn't contaminate us completely, but it does get our feet dirty. So we need to repent of our sins. In other words, we need to, we need to cleanse our feet daily. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons, First John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need, we need that. We need to pray like David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then we come to our last, the last part, the articulation of genuine remorse. And verses 22b through 25 is, is again, it is either Jeremiah prophesying what they would one day say, or many people tend to lean towards He's telling them the words that they should say. Here's what you need to do. So let's just look at Jeremiah 3, verse 22b, the middle middle of verse 22. So in other words, now we move to the part where they are praying. This is a prayer, kind of like any of the Psalms. Again, I've encouraged people, go to the Psalms. When you're not sure what words to say to pour your heart out to God, go to the book of Psalms. Invariably, there will be multitude of Psalms that hit what you're feeling. And so here's what he said. Now this is the prayer that Jeremiah was presenting and saying, you know, this needs to come from you. Behold, we come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. By the way, notice in verse 23, there's a lot of italics words. And the King James translators did that because this is a tough verse to translate from the Hebrew. So where you see italics, that's where they're adding because there's never a perfect translation. Uh, there's never a perfect transition from one language to another, and so the Hebrew, if we just read exact words in Hebrew, it wouldn't make sense to us. So in English, they add English words to give the meaning, but they want us to know. And this this is a challenge. So truly, in vain, is part of the Hebrew, from the hills is part of the Hebrew. The multitude of mountains truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So <laughs> what most people summarize is happening here. They are confessing now and they are acknowledging that this worship that we're offering here from the hills um, is, is worthless. It's empty. Vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. In other words, and this is what God was looking for, right? This Canaanite religion is, is bunk. It's empty. It's worthless. That's what God wanted them to say and to, to realize. And the multitude of the mountains along those same lines. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. That's what it's all about. It is all about our relationship with God. And that's what he wanted them to. That's what true confession is. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame. Interesting point that is brought out in other places as well. The Hebrew word that is used, that is translated for shame, is also a term that is used interchangeably with the word 
Baal. So, uh, many believe this is this sh- for shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers. And, and, and the idea is he's, they're saying, you know, we worship Baal. We offered up our children. We spent money. We offered up our flocks and our, you know, we wasted a lot of money shamefully to this shameful God, Baal. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. And they would literally offer up their children to the false gods. Now here they are. By the way, if you, you know, I can't help but see the parallel today with abortion. You know, uh, you know, abortion is accepted in our land and there's people that will, will fight it to their death. And so there's multitudes of ladies that are hearing the, the conflict going on and there's many of them that have chosen to terminate a pregnancy. And, and for many of them, they're realizing what a waste it was. Like, that was a life. That was a human being. That could have been my child. And in some sense, that's exactly what Israel was doing. And he goes on in verse 25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. In other words, the last verse, the idea is, we are lying down in our shame. In other words, we are suffering, and it's our own fault. And by the way, that is what God was looking for. That's what Jeremiah was looking for, for them to realize that they made their bed and now they're lying in it and they have accepted it. In other words, okay, we get it. We brought this on us and now we are confessing. That's our God. You know, it's amazing that God is is offering to these people to turn from their sin Back in 2001, which was many, that was decades ago. 2001, us older people don't feel like it was that long ago. In February, February 24th, 2001, uh, a one-year-old little Canadian girl named Erica from Edmonton uh, wandered out of her house in the cold winter Canadian night. And, um, and she was out the whole night before her family realized she was only one year old. Her mother, Layla Nordby, found Erica the next day, and Erica appeared to be totally frozen. Her legs were stiff, her body was frozen, and all signs of life appeared to be gone. Can you imagine the despair of a mom that sees her one-year-old child knowing that that mom just had a nice night's sleep and, and realizing that her daughter was out in the cold? So they ran, they they. They rushed little Erica to Edmonton's Stollery Children's Health Center, and she was resuscitated. And over time, to the amazement of all, there was no sign of brain damage. She, she was revived and resuscitated, uh, and they eventually gave her a clear prognosis, just a miracle of a child. Well, you know what God does? He takes the cold heart of the people of God, the Jews, the Christian who has wandered from him and has a cold heart. And our God has the ability to resuscitate that. In fact, he is going to do that for Israel, and he does that for us. All we need to do is come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your message to the people of Israel. And thereby, Father, again, 
Those things were, which were written aforetime were written for our learning. So, Lord, this book in Jeremiah is for us. Yes, it was to your people. Yes, it was to Israel and Judah during a time where they were anticipating and, and prior to their judgment through Babylonian captivity. And yet, Father, there's so much that you have for us. So I pray for Christians that are listening to this or that are here that you would just help us to realize your heart is to restore us like your heart was to restore Israel to the land of plenty and blessings, that your desire is to restore us to intimate fellowship, to a sweet walk with you, that you can replace our cold hearts with a fire and a passion for you. And I pray, Father, that you would do that, that folks would come clean, that folks would repent. You see our hearts. And Lord, if we're not broken and we're not sincere, would you please soften our hearts and give us that broken and contrite heart. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.